Hello, welcome to HFMA Talk. I'm Sarah Day, Policy and Research Manager at the HFMA. In this episode, we rejoin Caroline Clark, Group Chief Executive of the Royal Free London NHS Foundation Trust, and Sanjay Agrawal, Consultant in Respiratory Medicine and Intensive Care at University Hospitals of Leicester NHS Trust, to catch up with what has changed over the last few months and listen to how they are approaching the second COVID wave. This podcast was recorded the day after BBC Two showed the first episode of a new series of Hospital, which is following the Royal Free as they deal with the impact of COVID-19. It was also the day after some positive news about the development of a COVID vaccine. So without further ado, let's join Sanjay and Caroline. Hello, Sanjay. How are you? Hi, Caroline. So, Caroline, I I was interested in um, watching the documentary about the Royal Free yesterday and what's going on there. Um, I thought it was very brave having the scrutiny of the cameras. So how did that work out for you? Yeah, so we, um, so, so I don't know if you remember, but in the first wave back in March, April, we had the, so it's BBC um, Two have a, they commission a company called Label One who, who make these hospital documentaries. So they've done, I think, I think this might be their eighth. And um, so we agreed to do it back in March because we wanted to tell a story and we thought quite hard about it. And um you know, there were there were there were lots of negatives about it, about kind of are we going to expose ourselves and are we going to look, you know, you know, people don't want to look foolish. But we asked our staff, actually, and they wanted to do it and they thought that we should tell the story and we couldn't let the cameras completely in. So we took a view. So I don't know if you remember, but in back in March, we had our um, intensivists had kind of, sort of webcams on and we did it like that. Um, and then and then the company asked to come back. And uh, we again, we thought quite hard about it. Um, and again, we asked our staff and pretty much most people said we, we want to tell the story and we want to we want to be open and honest and transparent. You know, this is it's a you know, it's, it's democracy and uh, we quite you know, we quite like being in an open society. And, and that was the view. And it is a bit exposing. And um, uh, it gets I mean, you know, for the they've made six episodes this time. So last night was the first one. And I, I haven't seen them all because they're still they're still with us. So they're trying to do it as much in real time as possible. Um, and we don't have any editorial control apart from kind of factual accuracy. So there is that moment of, oh, my God, you know, like, what is it yeah. going to look like? So I have to say big, big sigh of relief in the Clark household last night. And my my, my exec team were really happy with it because they thought it told the truth. And, yeah. and the, you know, there were some moments in it where you think, oh, dear. Wish wish that person had worn their mask properly or all that stuff, you know. Yeah. But actually, you know, it, it's the truth. And the feedback I've had from other kind of healthcare people around the country is this is most people's lived experience. Um, yeah. I'm conscious that in the South, we are not seeing the rise in admissions that people are seeing in the rest of the country yet. But it sort of does tell the tale, doesn't it, of what, we, what it was like back in August. And, you know, you've got to compete for theatre space. You've got to compete for staff. And our staff are tired and they haven't all had holidays and all that stuff. So hopefully it brings some of that truth out. And and I'd rather we told it than someone who, you know, that, that makes it up. So I'd, I'd rather it was a truthful account. And, and and by the way, of course, the other thing that happens is that you do, NHS England don't have a right of veto, but we do, there is a bit of a clearance process so that you make sure that at least it's factually accurate. So that's all a bit painful, a bit bureaucratic, but, you know, it's done there. I think the thing that struck me about it is it did tell the story. So, you know, certainly from a management and thinking about, you know, finance teams and other um, executive teams around the country, this is exactly what you're doing. This is what my hospital's doing. 
And this is what me as a clinician is thinking about. Um, so, you know, it struck me that bit about moving care back from the private sector into the Royal Free and it being pretty short notice and then the management of that situation. And, you know, we all sort of probably live through that kind of rapid change all the time in in one area or another. Um, but, you know, what was I thought was just was great and it was portrayed really well is that everybody was working together as a team. No doubt there will have been frustrations behind the scenes. And um, <clears throat> but but nonetheless, you know, people accepted why things were being done, perhaps um, not necessarily happily, but still got on with it. And I think that's just what we're all used to, isn't it? What feels like an impossible situation at times. So I think what was useful for me about it is that, you know, it makes me feel that, well, what you're doing at the Royal Free is what we're going through. And I'm sure hospitals all around the country are going through. And I think. I think that's really helpful sometimes, isn't it? Because sometimes you think you're the only one. Um, yeah. But you know what? Like our, I, I know that the that independent sector contract got curtailed quite quickly. But, but you know, in truth, we we wanted our patients back and our surgeons and our anaesthetists back in the hospitals because that's what we're here for. And, um, you know, that, that arrangement was only ever going to be temporary. And, of course, when you're in it, you kind of lose sight of that, don't you? And, of course, you know, if you're sitting in an NHS England or improvement seat and you're in the centre, you're not you're not kind of in it all the time. So, um, so yeah, they're, they're, we do live through that tension and we have to, you know, I, I do also think uh, as a taxpayer, I want, you know, I, I want value for money and you can't rely, the independent sector is more expensive. People have to make a profit and they run it with less occupancy. So it's always more expensive. It's a bit like the the US health service, which what costs about 18% of GDP and is super expensive, partly because people are making a profit, partly because uh, actually they, they, they don't run it at, you know, my hospitals are at 93, 94% occupancy this week and they don't run it at those levels. So they have all that excess capacity. So you don't have to have waiting lists, uh, but it costs. So, yeah. you know, anyway. That's, so, yeah. so one of the things, the other things that, that struck me was, you know, you were talking with the team about the finances and, you know, that there was uh, a deficit that you had to work through despite the, you know, the additional pressures coming this winter. Mm. Um, and again, I'm sure lots of other hospitals up and down the country will be feel the, feeling the same. And of course, we've had the sort of block contracts and the the plan for the system next year with the you know 80% of stuff being on block contracts and and then and then and then some tweaks along the way. So how how do you feel about that? Is in terms of deficit, additional workload through the winter, system of payment. How mm. how are you feeling about all of that? Yeah, well, I'd say that the the system of payment that we had before uh, coronavirus wasn't working terribly well. Because if you think about if you you do take a step back and you think, right, so the NHS in January had four and a half million patients waiting for some kind of treatment or clinic. That's four and a half million people of a percentage of the working population. That's like 10 percent or something. I mean, it's bonkers. So uh, and a, you know, more than 50 percent of acute hospitals had some kind of financial deficit. That so, so so something wasn't working and we were struggling to make ICSs work. Something happened during coronavirus where um, certainly the systems that I've been involved with have worked much more effectively together and have worked in pursuit of treating as many patients as possible in the best place possible and um, and have put that first rather than the kind of transactional financial stuff that was going on before. So, so I think I'm in the place of 
for the next couple of years, we have got to get the nation back into a place where the NHS is kind of treating treating patients in a in a more timely manner, and that we're starting to treat long term conditions across the system in a better way. And I don't I, I don't I don't know that PBR is going to do the trick. So I do think there's something about funding systems. I think the ice, you know. It's interesting, isn't it? So the Royal Free's had a deficit for a long time and it's had a deficit for, you know, I, I mean, I would say this, wouldn't I? I don't think it's financial mismanagement. I think it's had a deficit because the tariff has consistently been less than the cost and the vagaries of the tariff just have recompensed some people more than others. Now, there might be people listening to this that disagree with me, but, you know, I don't, I, I think what you see now is a, a bunch of organisations with kind of quite healthy balance sheets and lots of cash, but they can't spend it because of government spending limits on capital and then organisations like ours which have had some balance sheet rectification because of the debt to equity swap that was done earlier this year but the thing it does feel kind of out of whack doesn't it there's a sort of serious and and there's no point having any cash because you can't really spend it so so we so we do I I think if I was a policymaker now and I'm sure they do this I'd be thinking about how on earth are we going to sort the infrastructure out? That's a really big issue, isn't it? So, you know, the Prime Minister's promised 40 new hospitals. I think they've put about, is it three and a half billion quid in? That, that, yeah. that in my world, might get you six or seven sort of medium-sized hospitals, if you're lucky. doesn't get you 40. So I, can't, I haven't figured that bit out. Plus, you've got a load of digital modernisation to do, which is, you know, tens of millions of pounds every time you put a decent computer system in, uh, plus all the connectivity and everything. And then, and then, and then you've got to also think about all the staff to go in those hospitals and the, you know, the operating costs. So there's some really big challenges to come. And so, so I think, you know, in answer to your question, thing number one is actually where's how are we going to finance it with a public budget that's so broken, and how does the government look at health and social care against other public sector priorities? And then I think there's the issue about, OK, so how does the money flow around the system? And I just think for the next couple of years, we've got to keep it really simple and at a system level. So that's my, yeah. you know, I think I'm fairly consistently not, I, I've sort of, I, I was a big, I was a big supporter of PBR back in the early yeah. 2000s when we had massive waiting lists. Yeah. I, I, I don't, but for now, I think the system is more important. What do yeah. you think? Uh, so, um, so I think I think I agree with what you were saying about clearly there are some areas whereby the the cost isn't met by the tariff, and you know um, I think different uh, uh, areas will have just accrued more and more deficit because of that, um, and so my hospital's in exactly the same boat, and and it, it's sort of somewhat demoralising then when you're sort of pulling out the all the stops in terms of trying to provide a service because you always feel that you're not somehow doing it properly or in the right way because why would you have such a deficit and it, it does feel a bit like that and and then also when you start thinking about well how are you going to ever catch up um, if you can't spend on staff and equipment and space <clears throat> to accommodate the 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 patients that we haven't been seeing um, and so that that's my concern is that it just seems like different organizations are going to have their hands tied behind their back and 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 unless that changes fundamentally i'm not sure what yeah. where, where the way out is actually and it's at times like that that it becomes somewhat disengaging for me i'm talking with my clinical hat on yeah. and all you can do 
is then actually get your head down, do the work that you could do and somehow yeah. hope for the best that somewhere along the way, right decisions are being made. And yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's spot on. That's spot on, though, isn't it? Because this only works if you can keep clinical engagement and the engagement of operational managers. And if you consistently give people budgets that are unachievable, targets that are unachievable and unbelievable, then they do disengage. And that's exactly what we need to avoid now. So, you know, so we've had a deficit since, I think, 2016. And it was very big. It was more than 10% of our turnover at one point. And it, it's now more like 5 or 6% of our turnover underlying, which sounds awful, but feels much better than it did. Um, we've we've really majored not on the bottom line, but just on our relative cost position, because we think that, you know, actually the work that's been done on reference costs by, by lots of HMA members actually is really good. And um, and it matters what stuff costs, doesn't it? And it yeah. matters that you, it gives you a really good insight into a patient's journey through a hospital and whether you've got the kind of optimal pathway and whether you can kind of process bits out of it, whether you can make that patient experience better. And if you can kind of boil stuff down to that kind of level, which is quite human about, well, you know, how was it, Mrs. Jones? And, did, you know, did we do it right? And did we get it right first time and all that stuff? Then then you start you start to think, OK, that's that's a much more engaging way of dealing with financial matters. Yeah. Um, and, and you can and, 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 and actually I've seen really, really good work done on costing. So we mustn't lose all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. How do you feel about the sort of NHS long-term plan transformational type activity that was due to obviously come online this year that's been parked probably? Um, and how does that fit into dealing with second wave now, winter pressures, um, catching up on, on planned care, and but then introducing new things that in the long term should help? How 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 do you how do you work that out at your level? Yeah, well, so I I've I've always um, my daughter knows me as Caroline. Three things I can only think in threes, right? So, yeah. but we we have three time horizons, and my time horizons pre-COVID were horizon one was kind of a year to eighteen months, so it's a fairly operational. What are we going to do? Quite detailed delivery plans, and then horizon two was like two to to five years. The transformational place where you, you you know you need to start making preparation but the plans won't be as detailed and then horizon three was the kind of, sort of the stuff that the medical director would do about our clinical strategy and vision and you've got to have that in order to make sure that you're doing the right things now um and and you'll know this working in a hospital does kind of science and research and stuff actually horizon three is super important so um so 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 my horizons have got a bit a bit compressed so horizon one now basically gets me I don't know, to the end of the year, you know, horizon two is is maybe, you know, one to two years and horizon three is five years. So everything's become compressed. Yeah. yeah. And um, uh, but I think other but there's some other stuff that's happened, which is good, isn't it? So the stuff on digital transformation, you know, pe people, specialists in this area say that we, we've gained a couple of years in our kind of, you know, it's catalyzed a lot of behavioral stuff from people like, you know, clinicians yeah, like you and, and patients. I don't know if that's your experience. Yeah, definitely. No doubt. There's no doubt, actually. Um, yeah, no, that's, 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 that's interesting. And again, I would imagine that lots of people are having to do that. There are so many priorities. What did you think about the um, COVID vaccine headlines um, in the last 24 hours? Does that... I mean, I suppose like all of us, you can't really factor it in because you don't really yet know for sure 
what the impact will be. But it's nice to have a silver lining somewhere, isn't it? Oh, you know what, Sanjay? If not this one, then another one, right? So it's a really good news story, and it's the start of the good news, I think. Uh, am I allowed to be political? I had a really good weekend because Biden yeah. and Harris yeah. got in, right? I was so happy. And, yeah. and, th- and then the vaccine thing, and I was like, oh, my God, I'm living in a parallel universe. The news actually is going in a way that I'd really like it to. Yeah. I hope lots of people felt like that. So I do yeah. feel like... You know, there's lots that, you know, this particular trial hasn't really concluded, has it? They've released some early results, which we're not used to. We're not used to science, scientists and drug companies going way. So yeah. so that's quite, it's quite cute. But I, I think, you know, a little bit of caution. It might not be this one, but but the Imperial one uh, is about to, we're a phase three unit for the, um, it's the Oxford trial, actually. Um, but, but the, but there'll be a bunch of other trials coming to a conclusion around about now. And I imagine in your organisation like mine, we, we've got tons of people now looking at a mass vaccine rollout campaign. Like I, like I thought the night, setting up the Nightingale at the Excel was like quite a big endeavour. But this vaccine rollout campaign is nuts. It's absolutely bonkers. And and then you realise that, you know, for the one that, that we, they talked about in the news last night, you kind of store it at minus 80 degrees Celsius. And you're like, oh, God, that's quite a lot of refrigeration, isn't it? It is. So, uh, that, that might be the rate limiting step, actually. Uh, well, well and then, you, then you think about Brexit and you think about all the stuff we commandeered in our first round of Brexit plans, including lots of refrigeration plants. So, uh, but probably not at minus 80, I'm guessing. So I think there's a, you know, there's loads of logistical problems. But this much I know, the NHS is full of really, really smart operators who are really good at logistics. Yeah. And, and um, when you combine that, particularly with military logistics, you get something very powerful. So I kind of think, you know, we can do it, um, but it's going to be a bit of a stretch. And, and the other thing I think is um, uh, that there's, you know, pe- people, it, you can't do these jobs without being optimistic. I am paid, I think, to be a bit optimistic as well as realistic. But I do think it's, it's, you, you can start to see, oh, did you see Sarah Montague interviewing, um, uh, what's the chap from Oxford, John Bell, yesterday morning on today's oh, programme? It's yeah. a really sweet thing that's gone on Twitter and it's gone viral. And basically she, she says to him, uh, so do you think life is going to return to normal next year? And he goes, yes, yes, yes. And then she punches the air. And it's really sweet because you never really yeah. see Sarah Montague. I didn't even know she looked like that. And um, and it's just like, yeah, punches air. So I think you can start to see a little bit of optimism creeping in and, and people will feel, everyone feels like they've got the brakes on a bit because they're not allowed to, you know, but, but we have to allow ourselves that. It's been a really, really tough old year. You know, we'll always remember 2020, won't we? And we'll always be super pleased that we're out. I don't think we'll return to normal. I don't think there will. We'll never return to where we were, will we? So I don't know about you, but I think now my hospitals are always going to look different. We'll always have kind of a bit of a one-way system. We'll always have glass screens. We'll always be much more cognizant of potential infection and manage it much better. Yeah. And I don't. Have you ever? I've never worked in the in in kind of countries like Singapore and China, but my colleagues who have tell me that we will look more like those hospitals now because these are countries that experience SARS and and understand how to deal with infection. I don't know if you get that. Well, I mean, I think it'd be interesting in terms of our physical plant and the way that many of our hospitals have been set up and the, the, age, the age of them and, 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 you know, a lot of them will have been adapted to COVID now, the first wave and now the second wave. Um, and so how much of the, the maintenance of that structure, in fact, will, will stay in place 
because people now know that pandemics can happen and do happen and therefore we need to plan for it so you know there's a whole just in case versus a just in time mm. and I think you know we have always operated on a just in time basis in throughout society actually you know so you, you do things just as you, you need to but actually the pandemic's probably taught us that we do need a more of a just in case approach to something but it's much more expensive um, that's the yeah. problem you know the physical plan the stockpiling the redundancy in in you know rotors or staffing or whatever because this stuff might happen again and it's made us more aware so it'll be interesting in future i think with sort of planning around the nhs and the health and social care service whether there is a step change in in approach based on our, our current experience um, one of the things i wanted to ask you is in the past when we've taught we um, talked about things that we were going to take from from COVID and the pandemic. And of course, when we, you and I were talking, I think April, May, we 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 didn't really know whether there was going to be a second wave and how big it was and what yeah. we were going to do. But of course, it, it is in fact here. So, what things do you think have you taken successfully, or is it uh, from the first wave, and that you can apply to this second wave, or is it you never really came out of the first wave? We, we definitely came out of the first wave. So, you know, London yeah. had a period of, of weeks, not days, where we had very, very little infection. And I can remember a few days where we had absolutely no patients with COVID in hospitals because uh, there, was there was quite a tail off where there were quite a few patients that had kind of long lasting disease. Um, so 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 we're definitely in the second wave, but it's linear rather than um, exponential. And I suspect that's different. So if you were listening to this probably even where you are, but north of where you are, yeah. then people yeah. have quite a different experience. And I sort of talk to my mates in the north of England and it, it, they, they sound much more together than I was in March. They sound much more specific. I think there's a, uh, um, we, we, I think we're all in better nick, aren't we? So, so, you know, now I know, I know much more about my medical rotors than I ever did. I know much more about what the juniors are up to and how we should look after them. I know much more about the mental health of my staff and how we need to support them. I know, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure the shops are going to stay open, so I'm never going to have to run a supermarket in the gym, which is what we did before, you know. Um, yeah. But I am going to take meals to the intensive care unit and look after them. So we've kind of learned quite specific things. And, um, and I suppose the other thing is we've learned about technology. So I've got, you know, thousands of staff working much more at home now. So, you know, I've learned that we've got to give them decent laptops and we've got to give them things to sit on that aren't their kind of footstools. I've also learned about other people's lives, you know, that some people, you know, I live at home with my partner and my kid in, in a flat with a big garden and, you know, we can get away from each other. But lots of people live with their mates or live with like loads of kids in a small space. And you think, oh, my God, and I'm expecting you to work from home. So we've got a whole new insight into the rest of the world because he realises. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I, I don't know about you, but after that. Um, so in about June, I can remember really properly coming up for air and having a look around. And realising that I live in a community with other people, with lots of people who are kind of like genuinely worried about their livelihood and losing their jobs. A lot of my mates like just lost all their income because they're all kind of freelancers and musicians and stuff. And uh, I just thought, God, I'm so lucky. I've got this fantastic job with these fantastic people. And yeah, it's hard, but it's like this is what I'm paid to do. Right. So I, I sort of had a bit of a rebalance myself kind of in sort of early spring, early summer. 
um, and, and realised it's not just about us. And, and then you started to hear the stuff about the economy and something. Oh God, okay, this is really properly serious. Um, which is why that conversation we had about kind of payment systems and stuff. You think, oh my God, actually, this is this is really serious. The infrastructure, our infrastructure, will start looking like American public infrastructure if we're not careful, because there just won't be any money to put into it. Yeah. You know, when you go to the US and you get, I, I remember the first time I went to America and I got off and I was, I think it was. Um, I think it was LAX, and I remember thinking, "Oh, it's going to be a really snazzy airport." And like, it was a bit, it's a bit crappy, really. It was really, yeah. really run down. And I thought, oh, "Gosh, that's who knew?" And then they have bridges that fall down and stuff. That's yeah. a small government. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it sounds like there's quite a lot of things that you've taken from first wave to second wave, actually. And I kind yeah. of feel the same. I kind of think, you know, our, our intensive care unit has taken on. Uh, a whole bunch of COVID patients this last week or two. And and I feel much better placed this time. And I think one of the things on on the programme, the documentary last night that one of uh, the people um, talked about was um, anticipatory anxiety. That's right, yes. And I yeah, love yeah. that phrase, actually. Yeah. I've been thinking about that today. And I think that first time round, we I, we had anticipatory anxiety, and it was worse because it was the un- completely unknown uh, whereas for me this time, it's a different type of anticipatory anxiety, or, or less anyway, because I kind of know what to do when I'm looking after my patients. I know what worked last time um, in terms of managing other things like you know oxygen supply and staffing and recovery. I know how we might run remote consultations. I know how I might keep other services going. Um, so I feel that there's there's less. I think that, you know, unfortunately, understandably, people are still very fatigued. So that that's not normal. And, and, and that's got to be taken into account. And actually, with the, the announcement of the COVID vac- vaccine, potentially successful COVID vaccine and a, and a program to roll that out, it, that also reduces the anticipated anxiety a little bit because you can see light at the end of the tunnel, as opposed to, let's say, another lockdown in January, February, and you know another surge of admissions, etc. So I think, I think that's really sort of good this time round. Um, I hope. Yeah. So, so, so you deal in respiratory disease. That's your thing, yeah. isn't it? So yeah. you must be, you must be super busy. I was thinking before we came on this call, like. How, yeah. how is your job at the moment? So I think there's two elements, obviously. So there's one's the intensive care, but the other one is the um, the respiratory side. So, you know, what we noticed with our lung cancer patients is that they were presenting later, unfortunately. So 80% of people with lung cancer, unfortunately, present at a, at a stage that's too late for curative treatment. And so we've had more people at a later stage, which means that it's going to be more pressure on chemotherapy and radiation and radiation treatments. And then with our my, my pulmonary fibrosis uh, group of patients, um, first wave, we weren't starting medications because we didn't know the risk with some of the immunosuppressants and the antifibrotics. And we didn't have a good system of monitoring and dealing with any side effects that they may have but this time around we can so actually I'm, I'm really pleased because I think sadly we did disadvantage a lot of people who didn't have COVID first time around and that that's well known but I think this time around we can do lots of other things the thing I do worry about is it's the, the workforce is the same so in in the respiratory side of things you know it's the respiratory teams for instance who will be taking the bulk of the COVID patients and and then there's these sort of added winter pressures 
And then when those two things abate a little bit, they'll still be the catch-up. So there's no downtime. And that's true of intensive care too. Um, and I think in terms of managing workforce, say for you or for, uh, for other people at, at, at your level, that, that's kind of, it's really tricky because what do you yeah. do with the fatigue yeah. and the burnout and some specialities will have had a bit of downtime. How do you manage all of that? Um, I, I don't know, really. Yeah. There's not really an answer. But if you can manage as much of the well-being as you can through support and recognition and acknowledgement, etc., um, then that goes a long way, I think. Yeah, I know. No, it's really interesting hearing you talk about that because it makes me realise, you know, actually, most people are like you, I think, and they, they, they're kind of like, this is, this is what we've got to do. But you're seeing stuff that you haven't seen, you know, we haven't seen in the Western world for years and we're seeing those late presentations. That must be really hard, actually. I kind of, you know, I, I see the sort of the younger nursing staff and some of the junior docs, I think, have been, you know, pretty upset by a lot of that. And you kind of think, God, what, what prepared you for this? Nothing, you know. So there's a kind of, you know, we, we've, we're really lucky. We've got loads of psychologists. In fact, I didn't realise we've got like psychotherapists, psychologists, psychiatrists all on our books. So yeah. they've come, and they've come together as a team to wow. provide talk in therapy, both for individuals and for, for teams. Uh, and I realised we need more of them, you know. Okay. And, and um, that's, that's quite different. And, and, and I tell you what, I've learned loads from trust people working in mental health organisations about how they do this stuff. And actually the other thing I've learned, which has been really like a salutary tale, is, of course, both the impact of covid differentially on different communities so that's well documented now so how do we make sure that we use those facts to address previous inequalities but also black lives matter happened during covid didn't it so yeah. so we're spending i'm spending a lot more time and i should have been doing this before but a lot more time thinking through how how do we make sure that we're not uh, disadvantaging patients in our processes. So we've started like cutting our waiting lists by protected characteristic and by socioeconomics, yeah. um, which commissioners do and public health people do, but hospitals don't traditionally. So that's been like a bit of a, a revelation. And then, um, of course, trying to make sure that our staff feel included and engaged and um, again, that we're not disadvantaging them either in training opportunities or giving them jobs and, you know, that whole kind of white privilege. But actually, it's true. I'm an old lefty. And this stuff yeah. is really important. It really matters to me. And yeah. I want people to come to work feeling like it's a, it's, it's a good thing to do for everybody. It shouldn't just be a, an elite sport. So I, I'm... I'm right in that space. And, you know, as the, F, the CFO originally, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I, I'm, it's, it's a delight, actually. It's the nicest thing about my job is I'm allowed to properly do something about really care about and, uh, you know, maybe, maybe make a difference. I don't know. We'll see. That's fantastic. That sounds so good. And, and, it, and I think we have, I think all over the world, probably, and then in our sort of our particular silos, healthcare, we, we I think everybody's reprioritised at a personal level, at a work level, what's really important. Yeah. Um, and that's fantastic. And also, you also, uh, for me, I've been sort of seeing, um, you know, groups that I normally work with. So, for instance, um, trainees, for instance, who, doctors in training who haven't been able to do the things they were meant to do this last six months, yet they're still going to come out the top and, and finish or um, still got exams to do or, or, or whatever. And, and one of the things I'm aware of is that, you know, we, we've got to um, flex and adapt to make sure that we meet their learning needs uh, because actually they're the next, you know, the generation. We, we, we've just got to keep things going and we've got to do that. And that responsibility. Um, and... Uh, and, and it's a yeah. once-in-a-lifetime thing for everybody, actually. Um, Isn't it? Yeah. 
Yeah. Are you? Are you? Can I? Can I ask you a question about that? So, are you letting trainees into the hospital to to work in the hospital? Because we've had that debate with the university about, you know, how much do you let these these, you know, if you're trying to reduce footfall and nosocomial infection in hospitals, then having loads of students floating around isn't quite, you know, that yeah. those those sort of tensions. So, so medical students, that's one thing, but they have been allowed to come on placements. I don't know if it's as full volume as it would normally be, and I'm not as much in touch with that. I was thinking more of, um, I was sort of talking more about postgraduate trainees, so registrars and um, and people like that. Um, and uh, The people who do all the work. Yeah, and, and, and they have been, actually. And uh, and I was, I was teaching a bunch of them yesterday, actually. And I sort of started the conversation about what's been good about COVID. And actually, most people managed to find, you know, lots of actually really helpful things, like they were having to travel less un, unnecessarily, or they had more time with the family, et cetera, et cetera. So, so the good news is a lot of them have had some really good things actually happen for them. And also doing, you know, learning a new skill like telephone consultations, they recognised it was a new skill that was really valuable. So I think I think they're, they're quite resilient, quite adaptable, which is great, but equally, many of them will have missed out on some experiences that they need. You know, if you're a surgeon and you need to learn how to chop out livers or something, well, you need to do that, don't you? Um, and, uh, and and so, so it's just, it's just yeah. uh, there are lots of unintended consequences. I think we've all done very well, I'd say, say uh, but actually there's some catching up on things like training and downtime and conferences. And actually one of the great things about medical education and, and conferences is that it's made it much more accessible. People are getting to conferences through Zoom or, or Teams. Um, so you lose in networking, but you're gaining accessibility, uh, yeah. which is kind of good. And they feel valued because then they can do that, actually. You know, um, there are these companies now, there's a lot of kind of simulation organisation, and I can't help thinking that you should buy shares in them because they're kind of, you know, so there's, there's, there's people that do those kind of virtual headsets and then they can sort of show you around and kind of almost like virtual OSCE type stuff. And then um, I went to... You know, down in in East London, sort of Old Street is like sort of tech city. And I went down there maybe about eighteen months ago, and I got introduced to this company, who shall remain nameless, but they're basically loads of like cool young things, sort of out of Imperial College, and they were doing surgical simulation, and they were basically filming every single operation that they could, and then using it as a as a teaching tool, and and the and all the different processes and. You just think, oh God, that's that's. I bet, I bet they're all kind of feeling quite happy at the moment. Yeah. But but I suppose nothing beats the um, the the process of actually meeting a patient, talking to them, you know, having that interaction. You can't do all diagnostics over a screen. It turns out, and you can't do all training over a screen. And we will always essentially be a a a people profession, yeah. a, a people industry, won't we? So yeah, I mean. I think you can prepare. So it's a bit like being taught how to drive without actually getting into the car or riding yeah. a bike without actually cycling it. You know, it's, it, you, you can go so far. So I'm guessing, Caroline, um, we should probably uh, wrap up. So I think <laughs> a couple of questions. So I know that you're doing the, um, the HFMA conference and you've been producing a playlist of music. So with and people have been sending you stuff in. So what um, have you sort of have you come across new music that you wouldn't have normally listened to, or or how, how have you approached the requests? 
Well, they keep the, the, the HMA team are keeping it a bit of a secret from me. So so far, all I've got is Mark Knight's love of prog rock, um, which Ooh. is which I don't mind actually. So I'm quite I'm I come from yeah. a background of kind of quite like you know I like guitars, yeah. I like a bit of rock yeah. music, and in fact, prog rock the home of prog rock was Canterbury, and my partner's from Canterbury, uh-huh. and so we spend a lot of time down there. So, yeah. but uh, but basically, uh, I have been I've become slightly obsessed with getting people to listen to music because I think it can really change your mood and it won't do it for everyone but it's sort of you know I've been walking to work a little bit so trying to keep fit and I get into work and depending on what I've listened to it totally changes my mood so you know this morning I popped into work and I was listening to a bit of 90s house and I started dancing in but you know yesterday I was listening to there's a band called This Is The Kit who are a little bit folky and ethereal and yeah. uh and and a, and a welsh woman called gweno who's just got this gorgeous voice she sings in welsh so i'm welsh so it's, it's yeah. a good thing can't understand a word she's singing because i can't actually speak very much welsh anymore but yeah. you know so i'm listening to all sorts of different stuff and um so i so i wanted to take the opportunity to ask you actually because i know you're a bit of a jazzer aren't you yeah 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 so so i've been listening to some 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 new stuff recently uh so actually lots of musicians are producing albums at the moment because i'm guessing they can't sadly perform i think we should get you to do a bit of a jazz podcast for the conference sanjay so i i, I tell you what i'm super excited about the conference i think it's going to be yeah. absolutely brilliant we're going to reach probably three or four times as many people as we normally do because yeah. of the digital thing yeah and, um you know whilst again again like it won't be quite it, there's something about being with people, isn't there? And yes. hanging out with your mates and chatting away. But, I, I, you know, I think we, what, what's brilliant about this year is it's shown people's flexibility. So we, we're, we're tough, we're resilient and we're quite flexible so we can do it. And I think Mark and his team have done a cracking job in, in, in um, uh, getting together a really good plan. And I'm not, I don't want to say any more about it because it'd be like a spoiler, won't it? So I kind of... <laughs> Yeah, I feel the same. I think the HFMA um, annual conference is the highlight of the year for me in terms of conferences. I mean, it's much better better than the medical conferences. I I think um, NHS finance uh, professionals know how to have a good time, uh, which is great. (laughs) And on that note, that that is a great note to leave. It's lovely to see you. Thank you for doing that. You too. And Uh, um, I hope I'll see you in a couple of weeks time. Yeah. All right. Take All right, care. look after yourself. Bye-bye. Yeah, you See Bye-bye. you. As Caroline and Sanjay mentioned, it's nearly time for the HFMA Annual Conference, the 12 days of conference running from 30th of November to 11th December. There are a range of sessions across the 12 days, including learning labs, a student conference and national NHS updates from a number of speakers. If your organisation hasn't yet signed up, then do take a look at our programme at hfma.org.uk and find out a bit more. Thank you for listening to HFMA Talk. Don't forget to sign up to this podcast to keep up to date with the latest episodes.